0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started in 2020 with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we're excited to resume with SALT New York in September of 2021. And our goal is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Ali Tamaseb to Salt Talks. Ali is a partner at Data Collective, also known as DCVC, which is a highly reputable venture capital firm in Silicon Valley with over $2 billion U.S. in assets under management. He holds several leadership and board positions at companies both globally and across the United States. He holds a degree in biomedical engineering from Imperial College of London and studied general management at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Uh, Tomasib was an honoree of the British Alumni Award, Centenary Enterprise Award, and the Imperial College Medal for Outstanding Achievement. His work has been featured in BBC, The Guardian, Forbes, The Telegraph, among many other news outlets, and he's given talks at major events and conferences. Hopefully, SALT is in his future as well. Uh, He lives today in San Francisco, California, despite being very much a citizen of the world. And I know DCVC uh, does business around the world as well. And I don't want to get started without mentioning that he's also the author of a new book. It's called Super Founders, What Data Reveals About Billion-Dollar Startups? I'm fascinated to learn more about what the data reveals so we can hopefully find that next unicorn. Hosting today's talk is Sarah Kunst, who is the founder of Clio Capital and a frequent guest host here on Salt Talks. We've loved getting Sarah uh, and her perspective involved in these conversations. And with that, I'll turn it over to Sarah for the interview.
1: Hi, so excited to, to be here and so excited to hear about what makes a super founder a super founder. Um, so before we dive into that, Ali, thank you so much for joining us. And we'd love to just hear a little bit more about, you know, your story and, and your motivation to write this. Why are you giving, giving away the guide so that everybody else can find deals as good as yours?
2: Thank you, Sarah. I'm glad to be here with you and John. I think the motivation behind this book it started about 4 years ago and you know there's a lot of popular narratives about what makes for a great entrepreneur and I think a bunch of that comes from media the social network movie we've all watched that we know about the stories of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak two co-founders one technical one business visionary you know savvy there's a lot of these famous stories. There's not actually a lot. There's a few of these famous stories that shapes our mindset about what the rest looks like. But today, there's 300-something billion dollar companies that were started in the past 15 years. And they don't necessarily all look like the same or look like these couple popular narratives that we do. And it's my job as an investor to you know, sort through thousands of companies every year to take a bath at one or two shots and sit on, sit on a couple of boards and, you know, help these companies get to billion dollar exits. And, you know, no, nobody had done the work of going to the ground truths of seeing it. Was there something different about these companies that become billion dollar companies and outcomes or not? So I, I decided to collect the data and, you know, it's, it's a very hard thing. It's, there is, you know, some data about the financing history of startups out there on platforms like Pitchbook and Crunchbase. But there's no data on the competitive landscape when these companies started, on the defensibility factors, on the career path of the founders, on the fundraising history, on the origin of the idea, on the pivots. There's a lot of factors. So I set on 65 different factors, and I collected this on every unicorn that's been founded in the past 15 years, every industry, tech, biotech, health, energy, fintech, as well as I collected the same data on... Every non-unicorn, every company that had raised a minimum of $3 million in venture capital, but did not become a successful outcome. So I had some stuff to compare between the two groups. And, you know, the findings were shocking. I decided to write a book and I decided to interview a lot of these founders. I interviewed founders of Zoom, GitHub, Instacart, Nest, and investors like Alfred Lin of Sequoia and Peter Thiel.
1: That's awesome. And what did you find? What what brand of hoodie makes founders most likely to be successful?
2: <laughs> um, you know, the shocking thing was that data showed a lot of factors that normally we've thought to be correlated with success are not correlated with success. And that's where the shocking and counterintuitive part is. Obviously, the data showed there's a bunch of things that do matter. So there are some truisms. And there's a lot of stereotypes and we will talk about both of them in this session. Maybe let's start with some of these stereotypes. The one that I like is about, you know, uh, successful founders need to have solved their own problem. They need to be, you know, their own customer. They need to have a personal mission or personal problem. And I think you see that again, it's, it's, it's a little bit of that narrative bias. The bias comes from, you know, these stories. Make for a good story and they make themselves into media and you see and read articles about them. But when you actually collect the data, you see that a lot of these, you know, very successful founders were opportunity driven. They found a good trend. They were excited about starting a company. The event, they went, they talked to different types of customers. They jumped from industry to industry until they found the right idea. And we often don't hear about that one or two years of a journey that these entrepreneurs went on to find the right idea. We only hear the last part. And somehow connect that to you know this founder had this problem when they were in in, they were a child or something happened to them and try to connect the dots like that. But oftentimes that doesn't exist. A similar thing to that is about uh, having domain expertise in the same industry. I think a lot of ways we assess company startup founders is you know are you you're building an insurance company? How much do you know about insurance? Or how many years have you worked in insurance? Turns out that doesn't matter. Only 30% of consumer tech founders of unicorns had worked in the same industry. Only 40% of enterprise SaaS, you know, unicorns had worked in the same industry. The rest, they had this skill of learning more than anybody else about the specific problem. They had the resources and connections and the soft skills to go on and know about that specific veg into the market more than anybody else, even if they were not from the same industry. There's a lot more. There is, there's, there's about things about age, you know, there are people who were looking for the 19-year-old, 20-year-old college dropout. There are people who are looking for the gray haired, you know, two, three decades of work experience. Seems like again, age was not correlated with success. You can be 19 years old, you can be 68. I think that was the oldest that I had in my data set. To start a company and when you even compared it to distributions, the median age was 34 among, you know, tech unicorns and 42 among healthcare and biotech, which seems a little bit older than, you know, when I survey people or ask them, what do you think the average founder of a billion dollar company when they started that company, uh, looked like? you know there there's a ton uh we can go on about competition, for example, a lot of people try to say we don't have competition. you're the only people eighty five percent of unicorns had competition when they started. They won in most of these cases, they were competing with big sleepy, incumbent giants uh you know they were competing with the oracles and the visas and j p. Morgans of the world, you know rather than other startups. So, you know, there, there's a lot we can go on if you have specific, you know, thoughts about any of these topics you wanted to ask, go on or, you know, each of them are in the different chapters of the book. I go into details and provide examples and stories of the companies.
1: Yeah, no, this this is there's there's so many. I have so many questions. Um, so, you know, one one really uh one really interesting data point I thought um, was, was the schools they attended. So, so dig into that a little bit more. I think there's this, this thought that, you know, it's kind of Stanford, Harvard or bust um, and, and it feels like you found something pretty different.
2: Yeah, so the data showed that school does matter. So that's one of the factors that is correlated with success. And, you know, the, the typical Stanford, Harvard and MIT's they do contribute a lot of you know, founding, founding you know, CEOs of these billion-dollar companies. However, when you look at the full distribution, you see that there were as many founders of unicorns that had attended schools, not even in the top 100, as the same, the same number as them had attended the top 10 schools. So it looks like a barbell. There's like 36% top 10 university founders, 37% you know, top, not even in the top 100, and the rest in the middle. So again, it, it is correlated, but there's a lot of hope. There's, you know, 58% or 68% of founders of these billion dollar companies did not go through top 10 schools.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. So, you know, what what is there a money ball strategy here, right? Do 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 people just pick up the book and then, you know, make a really crazy spreadsheet and say, you know, if if you're a founder who's doing XYZ, you know, take our money because you're you're statistically more likely to, to make me really rich. Um, how how do you think about, I guess, one, that that for the gamblers in the crowd. And then two, you know, how do you think about that just impacting your own investing?
2: For sure. So I think. It, it's the reverse. We can become better investors by putting away our preconceptions and misjudgments about a specific founder or a company. It's amazing to go... like There's a bunch of things the book showed it matters. Large industry, it does matter. Defensibility, it does matter. Previous work experience does matter. Being a former entrepreneur does matter. If you have previously sold a company for a small amount that does matter. There's a bunch of things that the book, you know, and the study found out to be uh, contributors to success. And I will talk specifically about one of them, uh, which is the previous, you know, entrepreneurial uh, things that you've done. But I think my goal with the book is to push the industry, you know, ahead, let give give a nod to, you know, the other investors that, you know, if we put some of our preconception notions about where the idea has come from, chip on the shoulders somebody solving their own personal problems, you know, what degree they have. We can become better investors by not saying no to the companies that go on and become billion-dollar companies. It's as as important to say yes to the companies that are successful as not saying no to companies you see you have access to invest by reject for the wrong reasons. And I talk about all these wrong reasons to reject a company for.
1: What, What are some of the wrong reasons to reject a company?
2: You know, family members uh starting as a company, I see a lot of investors reject founders based on that. You know, there's a ton of successful companies with two brothers, three brothers, father and son, fiancés, married couples, that happens and they're successful, Um, you know, not investing in a company because they have competition, because what if Google does this or what if, you know, MasterCard does this. And in a lot of these cases, these startups end up becoming successful. Or you know, not having domain expertise in a specific industry. You know, what do you know about this industry? There's a lot of these reasons which might be wrong. What is important is the character of that founder. You know, being able to to sell the vision and attract super amazing people in the early days. One of the best examples of this, Katrina Lake of Stitch Fix. You know, first one year she attracting amazing talent out of Netflix, out of Walmart to join her as in the executive team. These are some of the factors that are contributors to the success of these companies.
1: Yeah, and and you know, talk a little bit more about you know, you talk about how early value creation matters, and and obviously, it's a little bit more nuanced than hey, if you sold your first company for a billion, you'll probably sell your second for two billion. So you know, what do you mean by that early value creation, um, especially when it it isn't uh, you know, just you're already incredibly rich.
2: Exactly. So I think, you know, when when investors think about um investing in serial entrepreneurs, or, you know, serial successful entrepreneurs, it's exactly what you say, you know, you sold a company for 500 million dollars, your next one would be 3 billion dollars. That's normally what comes to mind. What I found is I mean, that's obviously true, but it expands way beyond that. Uh founders Founders, you know, second-time founders were more likely than first-time founders to start billion-dollar companies. Second-time founders whose previous company was a small success, maybe it was an Aqua hire or maybe a technology acquisition, they were more likely to start a billion-dollar company next. You know, even people who didn't start venture-backed companies, you know, started a side hustle and made a million dollars, started a project, and you know, somebody wanted to buy that for you know five hundred thousand dollars or two million dollars, they were more likely to start billion-dollar companies. What I found among these you know, successful founders was a never-ending itch for building something, for selling something, for creating, you know, even, even not for money. Uh, I can give a lot of examples here. The founder of Cloudflare had started a nonprofit you know, spam email collection tool before starting Cloudflare. Founder of Calm, the you know, $2 billion meditation app, which is you know, very popular, had started this web page, the million-dollar homepage. Which was, you know, a million pixels. He would sell each pixel for $1. You know, a lot of people paid attention to it. He made a million dollars. That was it. It wasn't a venture backed, you know, success. It wasn't exit. He made a million dollars. Founders of Stripe, you know, the $80 billion company now, they weren't first time entrepreneurs, even though they became you know, billionaires by the age of, you know, 20 something. Before that, they had to start the company an auction management tool for eBay, you know, sellers called Octomatic. That was acquired for four and a half million dollars before that. Founder of Spotify, he sold the company for, I think, one million dollars before. Founder of Coinbase, he started, you know, a company called University Tutor. Even the, the, the big, big, big people that we think are first-time founders. Bill Gates, Microsoft wasn't the first company. Trap Data was the first company. Zuckerberg. Facebook was the face first company, but it wasn't his first project. He had started a bunch of projects and different apps before one of them with Adam D'Angelo, the founder of Cora, which was a music player, uh, Synapse music player. So you, you see this never ending passion and itch for going out, creating, selling and, you know, moving on to the next thing among these founders.
1: Well, in middle school, in high school, uh, I would get in trouble because I would knit during class and then I would sell my (laughs) knit more. And so I would knit during class so people could see it and then get excited and they would pay me more. So I guess that means I'll be a billionaire soon is what I'm hearing.
2: How can I invest?
1: Exactly, exactly. Don't worry, I'll send you the docs after. Um so, so no, I mean that that these are these are just such interesting insights. Um what's what's the thing out of all of this? What's like the one data point that surprised you the most?
2: Um if I were to say about one, I would say competition. Um 70% of these unicorns we were not creating a new category and they were competing for share in an existing market with better execution. I think a lot of us are thinking about, you, know, you need to be creating a whole new category from zero. You need to be Coinbase. But turns out a lot of these billion dollar companies, the majority of these billion dollar companies are doing better execution in a massive market. They take market share and they become big. And actually on average, they have created larger companies Than new category creation companies, which seems a little bit counterintuitive to me, but it's not. Same thing on being a first mover. Only thirty percent were first movers. Seventy percent were not, and they had they were just recycling old ideas that became successful at, at a different point. And when they became successful, it was because of an inflection point in terms of regulation or in new technology.
1: No, that, that's super interesting um, that there's, yes, I, I, I'm thinking through, you know. That was going to be the, my
0: follow-up question about competition. <laughs> is, uh, you know, well,
1: What is it then, John? What's your follow-up? Do, do you
0: think there's a reason for that, you know, the competition piece? Do you think competition makes people better? I think about Stripe as an example, and, and they're in sort of a commoditized space where you have Adyen, you have PayPal, you have uh, Square, you have Authorize.net. There's all kinds of different ways that you can take payments but Stripe has just continued to aggressively innovate around all the data and information that they gather because they're the main point of sale. That's just one example. But do you think competition you know, breeds excellence type of situation? Or what do you think the drivers of success in a more competitive environment, as opposed to that moat concept that somebody like Warren Buffett talks about when he invests?
2: For sure. I think competition from good big companies is a sign that that market is large. And you, you want nothing better than a massive market that the customer is educated. Somebody has paid the price to educate the market to take the market time and risk. And at this point, it's a massive market, customers educated and you can just go execute better and sell. And obviously, you know, it does drive innovation and, and, you know, a lot of excellency in the way these companies operate. But I think the biggest thing is it's a sign that the market exists and it's large.
0: Yeah, almost like if you start a company and there's nobody trying to do anything resembling what you're doing, maybe you're solving for a problem that doesn't exist. Exactly. It's an interesting way to think about it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That that is, that is a a super interesting way to think about it. How, how much do you feel like, so so I guess how long did collecting all this data and writing the book take you and, and, you know, what changes have you seen in your own investing since sort of, you know, before you started doing this or or before you kind of, you know, started digging in and, and then now after you see these findings.
2: Yeah. It's a little bit over four years. So the data collection piece took three Three and a half years, and the writing the book piece took me one year, and and the interviews and stuff. So you know the hardest part was data collection. It's thirty thousand data points. You can't outsource it. You can't automate it. It requires a lot of judgment, reading, cold emailing, surveys, a lot of different you know things to collect this data. Uh, so that was the longest and hardest part. Um, and then the interviews were the most fun part because I got to you know talk to all these amazing founders and investors. Um, and again, the, the little bit hard part at the end was editing and finishing and making it in, into a book. The way this, this has changed my thinking, I think number one is to not let my you know, judgments come into the way of backing a great entrepreneur. You know, You don't need everything to check out for a company. You don't need everything to be good about a company. That's not a recipe for investing in the best company. You need one thing to be exceptionally good and the the other pieces may fall, you know, into pieces, or the, the other pieces to fall in, and you know, the company would work out. So that's one. The second is, you know, again, instead of looking for what company you worked at or what university you come from, these kind of stuff, look for this characteristic of you know, what have you sold before, what have you built before, what type of money did you make before, you know, coming and starting this company. And I think you can get a lot of information about the characteristics. Uh, of these founders, rather than proxy metrics, like university where you work, and these kind of stuff.
1: I love that characteristics, not proxy metrics. I like it. um how how do you think, you know, there, there's obviously in our industry, sometimes a lot of bias in terms of who gets funded and who doesn't. How does this data help sort of disrupt that? Because, you know, that the pattern matching that everybody talks about in our industry, you know, I think your book is a great point that it's not that pattern matching, it's bad. It's just that most people are probably matching, you know, the wrong patterns. And, and so how do you think this helps, you know, kind of expand the aperture? Does it help expand the aperture of, of who should be looking at getting funding?
2: For sure, yeah. I guess the the point is instead of letting ten or five famous stories run that you know pattern matching, let three hundred companies run that pattern matching. So by showcasing, I think I have hundred stories from a hundred different companies in the book. You know, all different examples, all different interviews. So I hope you know this helps show a lot more examples of some of these companies that went on and became successful, and sometimes against the odds. A lot of my interviews is you know companies that succeeded even though. They didn't agree with what the data was saying about them. So I wanted to give the full picture about, you know, there's pattern, there's anti-pattern, there's a lot of different things that may work, uh, even at the, at the odds of data. Um, I think the main way it can reduce bias is with, you know, telling investors and entrepreneurs that a lot of things you may have cared about before, you don't necessarily need to care about how many co-founders you have what university you went to, you know, a lot of these things or if, if you're family members or if you have competition uh, with, you know, and it depends on what type of competition. But if you go and look into a lot of these, you know, patterns and factors, you realize you, you can put aside some of your judgment or wrong bias against and look for characteristics, look for a big market, look for, uh, you know, some sort of defensibility or accumulating advantages that would make this company
0: a massive success. I yeah. got a question, Ali about geographics. I want to dig more into that question. So if you're on Twitter, you have to see Keith Raboy every day and, and all of his minions pumping up Miami as the next big tech hub. As everybody's got to move to Miami. you know, Obviously, Silicon Valley's had a high concentration of startup founders, of talent, of VCs, uh, but that's sort of decentralizing COVID acting as an accelerant for that. As you looked at data around you know, geographic location and what types of areas incubated the most successful startups? What did that data show? Did it show that it's more decentralized than we think it is? Or did it show that Silicon Valley dominated it? And also, as you look globally, is there any you know, explosion in entrepreneurship around the world? I think you and I both have spent some time in the Middle East, uh, in the UAE in particular, uh, where there's, there's a pretty thriving uh, startup ecosystem that's developing there. But what are your thoughts on the geographic piece?
2: Yeah, so when you look at the data, and you have to pay attention, this is historic data. So I'm not sure, given everything that happened with COVID, distributed work, remote work, everything was accelerated towards this. So I'm not sure how predictive the data would be. But I will tell you the historical observation. Historically, or in the past 15 years, exactly half of billion-dollar companies were created in Silicon Valley. The other half were created in different tech hubs, Southern California, New York, Boston, uh, and, you know, a lot of different regions that you, that you can think about. In the book, I have a number of interesting interviews. One of them is with Rachel Carlson, uh, founder of Guild Education. What's very interesting about her story, and this is, you know, a multi-billion dollar company in the upskilling and tech space, that she was in Silicon Valley. The company started here, raised money here. She was a Stanford MBA grad and then intentionally moved the company to Denver, which is not a traditional tech hub. And the company thrived there and she's very happy with the decision, you know, looking back five years, six years after. So I think a lot of this move towards, you know, let's go out of Silicon Valley. Let's go where it makes sense for the company. I talk about root insurance, which is, um, you know, not in a Silicon Valley tech hub, but it's where there's a concentration of people from the insurance and insurtech industry. Um, so I think you need to look for what's better for your startups. But when you look at the data, the companies in Silicon Valley, they were more likely to succeed. So there seems to be something about concentration that helps or historically have helped. Now, maybe that thing can distribute to other tech hubs that get enough concentration of talent. It could be Miami, it could be Boston, it could be New York or anywhere else, or even internationally. But it seems like at least historically, there was something to that concentration of talent and, and capital. Maybe in the future, that that doesn't remain. I don't know the answer to that
0: question. Well, I'll look forward to Super Founders 2, uh, the sequel to Super <laughs> Founders, where you study sort of the post-COVID era. Uh, Steve Case, who's a friend of Salt, who's been on Salt Talks, who's been at our conferences, you know, he has a fund that's invested in the idea that at least in the United States, you're going to see a greater distribution of talent and startups uh, in the rest of the country outside of Silicon Valley and also uh, New York are the places that he looks for for startups outside of those places. And you see companies like Palantir, you know, move to Denver, for example. Yeah. Uh, so, so you are seeing, you know, uh, people relocate and look for higher quality of life with the ability uh, and in the explosion of remote work. So again, looking forward to Super Founders 2.0. Get started four years in the making, right, uh, Ali? Four more years. Yeah, of
2: <laughs> yeah hopefully I'll, I'll spend another four years in, in 10 years.
0: You know, um, in the last four years, I, I I created uh, four children, so uh, I need to spend more time. You know, may, maybe working.
1: Um. That, that's prolific. <laughs> Actually, yeah. Do you have any data about about uh, family? How how many how many founders are are parents?
0: Oh, I don't want to hear it. You're going to tell me that that my career <laughs> is doomed now because I got too many kids. I don't know the answer to that, and and probably <laughs> not
2: because you know when the median age is is 34, you know yeah. you can make some assumptions about the family situations. Yeah. Uh, of these founders
1: yeah that 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 is very true that is very true um well sorry john you're doomed uh, but you know maybe one of your kids will have a great chance um, yeah. actually that that's another interesting question you know is are there correlations like that i know that you know it, it seems like a lot of times founders feel like hey you know i, I started my company because I saw, you know, I'm from an entrepreneurial family and it doesn't usually is not that they were a tech startup family, but, you know, maybe their, their parents owned a restaurant or something like that, you know, or, or, you hear a lot about, you know, uh, the, the disproportionate number of immigrants who start companies are, are those things that, that I think even founders believe about themselves are, are those showing in the data or, or is it, is that less important or just not, not stuff that ended up in this data set?
2: It did not. You know, the the hard thing about doing a study like this is you need to pick metrics that you can collect that data on all these, you know, couple hundred companies and the non-unicorns. And it's it's impossible to do things outside of, you know, traditional things like, you know, what you can get from LinkedIn and interviews and these kind of stuff. Uh, Maybe you can get about 20 of them, but not all 500. So it didn't. From the stories, I guess it it does, you know, hearing a lot of these uh, entrepreneurs seems like a lot of them come from families who were academics, you know, a lot of them had, you know, moms or dads who were professors or who were entrepreneurs who had started, you know, non-tech companies and they had seen that path. Uh, But I guess what's more important than that is they themselves had a history of starting stuff and building companies and projects from, from a young age and, you know, Finally, and eventually they got to starting that massive billion dollar
0: outcome. Yeah. So and one of your key findings that you talked about, Ali, is the idea that that most unicorn founders had no industry experience. So I work in the financial industry. Uh, Skybridge is basically a hedge fund, a fund of funds. We also uh, do some direct investing as well. I guess you could consider us. A legacy financial institution. We work with a lot of you know traditional banks. But you're seeing an explosion in fintech. You know This was happening even before COVID. COVID has been an accelerant for fintech. So when companies are going into a new space, you, you think basically based on your data, that the idea that you're coming in with a fresh perspective, let's say the financial industry is an example. Most fintech startups are, are created by people that didn't grow up as an investment banker at Goldman Sachs or a, a wealth manager at Morgan Stanley.
2: Yeah and again when you when you look at the distribution it doesn't say you are less or more likely if you don't like it's not a good thing if you don't have in domain expertise it's also not a good thing if you don't have domain expertise right. you know just 30% of consumer tech founders did have domain expertise and only 40% of saas enterprise did have industry domain expertise but it goes back to the characteristic thing you when you look at a lot of these founders they had the resources maybe they had some track record Maybe they had, you know, had this small exit before. They had built that reputation to go and network with people in this industry and go on a fast learning curve of, you know, in one or two years, learn more than anybody else about that specific part of the specific industry that they wanted to go and disrupt. They would know about that more than anybody else. They would know more people on that more than anybody else. And it's those kind of soft skills about having the resources and the network and getting the talent. And capital and selling your vision, that's more important than, you know, having 10 years of experience as a wealth manager to be able to come in and build a wealth management software company, for example. You
1: no, know, that, that, that's really interesting. I feel like what you're telling us is there's not just a cheat code where we can go identify billionaire, soon, soon to be billion-dollar startups. But, you know, it, it's so important, I think, to, to question some of the, the things we take for granted Um you know what? What? How? How long back did this data go? Meaning, you know, is this data a big reflection of like the last ten years or, or the last twenty years? And, and how much? Fifteen. 15. So two thousand
2: five. Yeah, two thousand five. The start was the start of
1: this data set yeah and, and you know how how much do you think what do you think would change obviously the internet's changed so dramatically since pre-, pre 2005 but you know if, if you do you think if you ran this again 15 years from now you would see a lot of similar data sets or are there you know massive in your mind fundamental kind of macro shifts that that might you know show that that totally different profiles of founders are successful?
2: I think some things would change, certainly the names and numbers would change, you know, the companies. So for example, if you look at the early cohort of the 2005 to 2008, nine companies, those founders are more likely to have worked at Yahoo or at Oracle. When you look at the past five years, those those founders more likely to have worked at Square or Facebook or Stripe. Um. So that's the kind of, you know, a lot of these numbers change or, you know, what was a seed round back in 2005? is is you know a pre pre round now uh in two thousand twenty one so a lot of these numbers change, but even when I look at different industries or geographies or different times, a lot of these trends and a lot of these characteristics are are still the same you know it's the same people who had a bug for building back in two thousand and five then they are the same people in two thousand and twenty that had a bug for building and had created stuff that ended up becoming billion dollar founders. Same thing about competition, same thing about a lot of different things, obviously industries change, new categories emerge, new sh- macro shifts like geography and remote work can you know alter data, but I think generally a lot of these may hold
1: yeah yeah no i I, I you know instinctively i kind of I'm inclined to agree. Um, but but we'll see because we have all the data now. Um, how do you hope people will use this book? I mean, should should founders be reading this to try to 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 you know reverse engineer success? Should investors be reading it to do the same thing? You know how how this feels like it's going to become a must read and a and a big teaching tool. So also of course tell us where where we can find it and where we can buy it. But you know would love to to just kind of know how you envision this being used out in the world.
2: Yeah, I hope you know founders investors and people around the industry, lawyers, mentors, advisors, accelerators, incubators, investment bankers. I think that's that's the audience for this book. And anybody, you know, honestly, is interested in starting companies and entrepreneurship. And, and the way I think, you know, there's a lot of practical advice for founders in the book based on the data that, you know, this is something doesn't, that doesn't matter. Maybe, you know, number of co-founders doesn't matter. So if it means that you have four amazing people to start the company, start it. Don't stick to the narrative that you need two co-founders. So a lot of these things I talk about in the book that you know if something doesn't matter. Don't don't sweat it. Um, and you know same thing for investors for you know reducing bias. And there's a lot of inspiration in these stories and interviews that you know I think as a founder uh, it would be very interesting to read and understand the path that you know these couple hundred other companies took and these founders took to become a massively successful founder.
1: Awesome. Yeah, that's super helpful, John. Do you have any last questions?
0: Well, my last question is: When does the book come out? Where can we buy it? Uh, tell us all that about Super Founders. Yeah, so the books come out May
2: eighteenth, uh, just at the shelves. It's available on Amazon, Audible, Kindle, local bookstores. Um, you can read it in different versions, and U.S. and outside of U.S. as well. Uh, a lot of different. Did countries. you
0: dictate the Audible version?
2: I did not. No, there's somebody much who has a much better voice and accent than me that's doing the honors. All right. Well, I
1: think you would have been great at it, but yeah, uh, everybody agree. need needs to go get this book, and and you know maybe maybe we can get you uh, to to New York in September uh, for the Salt Conference, and and everybody can can hit you up for advice on how to uh, to invest in the next unicorn IRL.
0: For sure, I'll be glad to. All awesome. right. Again, the book is called Super Founders, What Data Reveals About Billion-Dollar Startups. Really looking forward to reading it, Ali. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Ali Thomaseb of DCVC. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access them on our website at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. Uh, just a reminder: We're also on social media. LinkedIn is where we're most active at Salt Conference, but we're also on Instagram, uh, Twitter, and Facebook as well. One data point that Ali uh, didn't point out is that people who watch Salt talks are actually uh, 74% more likely to become unicorns. Uh, that is unaudited, unverified, but uh, it, it's a snippet that that's in part of his book. I'm not going to tell you what page it's on, but. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for tuning in, and please spread the word about these SALT Talks. But on behalf of Sarah and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.